Welcome to another episode of North of the Shire. And what are we on? Episode 12 or episode 13? 13, man. Come on. Episode 13. Yes, and as you can tell, I am here with my favorite dungeon master and your favorite host, Mr. Andrew Brock. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm doing all right. Yourself? Doing well. Doing better than I was the last time when you pointed out that I was kind of lackluster in our our opening. I got to say, you definitely picked it up. We have a very <laughs> we have a very sort of pulp fictiony kind of intro where our intro is literally recorded this is the last thing that we've done for this episode. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, last time I was uh I was kind of down in the old dumps the last the last time. I've kind of been like struggling a little bit with the old uh with the old mental health, I guess the COVID finally got me a little bit, uh, and had had me a little bit down on one knee for for a little while, but mm-hmm. pulled myself out of the doldrums and and uh, doing better, doing better. That's so, right. Feeling good. Perseverance, a dawn story. That's <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. All fifty-eight years of it. Oof. You got it. <laughs> Um, any any hobbying or anything like that going on, or is that like way too much to ask? Given it's like year end time, and all way that? too much to ask. I can say this though: I have finished well this iteration of our financial statements, even though the month end is next week <laughs> or the week after. But yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, things have been really crazy at work. Um, you know, my 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 extra time off. Uh, I say time off is either spent with my wife or it's spent, uh, to your point, uh, in creating a fantastic Dungeons and Dragons adventure for yourself, Garrett, and a couple <laughs> of other our friends. Um, yeah, well, that's what's happened is like over this very long COVID experience um, with not much uh, MESBG gaming happening, a lot of hobbying for me, but <laughs> almost no gaming. Um, been focusing on other things and yeah the D has been like a real uh, lifesaver for for game sanity i guess for oh, us absolutely plus great sort of remote social engagement good laughs all around and uh let me tell you it still is a fair amount of work roll 20 which is the, the site we use fantastic except for roll d20 yeah roll d20 um is fantastic but you still have to find maps right for people to play on which is great because you don't have to describe it as a dungeon master. Um, but I, I miss those um, those dry erase boards we have with the grids on them. Super <laughs> easy to outline a box and say, you're in a room. Congrats. Let's have an encounter. Yeah. <laughs> and this way you have to like, here's a thousand different maps for you to look through. Pick the one you want. Pinterest has been my friend because it has a wealth of D&D maps and and iconography and, and uh, oh that's awesome artistry. That's awesome yeah one thing uh, one thing i like i haven't done a lot of hobbying in the last few weeks i have done a little bit but not nothing really to to write home about but um i did mention in a previous episode there is a youtube channel called nerd of the rings yes and um i actually ended up watching the interview on on that channel that he did, did with jed bro that appeared in in all of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies as like bit parts and extras and all kinds of different things. Like he played uh, like his biggest role was Nori the dwarf mm-hmm. in in the Hobbit trilogy, but he also played uh, Sharku, 
Oh, and he played uh, Snaga. Mm-hmm. And you know he he played as a ring wraith, the riders of Rohan, you know all kinds of different things. So really interesting interview, especially if you're into the into the film side of uh, Lord of the Rings and mm-hmm. The Hobbit. Um, and this was who sort of. His name is Jed Brophy. He's okay. a guy. Um, he's from New Zealand, actually. Oh, okay. uh, he's actually right around the same age as I am. I think he was born one year later than than myself so Mm -hmm. um i enjoyed it actually like an hour and 40 minute long interview um talks about a lot of like behind the scenes stuff because he's not like a huge star or whatever so it's kind of a different perspective on on all that kind of stuff but Mm -hmm. he's got like a lot of good stories of interaction with some of the other actors like he told a couple stories about you know meeting like an acting with christopher lee and you know different things like that so it was really worth really worth the time like if you're painting or whatever um good good little youtube program to throw on and and listen to i'd recommend it all right yeah Yeah, he's also in um i don't know if you ever saw it but there was a a series made um i think it was 2016 called the shannara chronicles which is about the uh the book the shannara books by terry brooks i love those books yeah unfortunately the tv series two thumbs down from me it was it lasted one season and that was probably too long um but anyways Hmm. hopefully they can do another series of shanera that is a little bit better and i know you mentioned something one in one episode about the tolkien professor yes yes he does a podcast um mm-hmm. that you had started listening to at one point i don't yeah. know if you're still listening to it well I, I noticed when i was logging in to listen to this jed brophy interview one of his most recent videos is he interviews that guy the tolkien professor dr Corey yeah. olson is his name mm-hmm. yeah so i haven't listened to that and i haven't listened to any of his podcasts so but I imagine uh, you might be interested in that. Okay. Well, if you're if you're super keen on sort of listening to someone break down Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, Silmarillion, from um, a historical perspective, like pulling upon some of Tolkien's own writing, other writings and works and short stories and anecdotes and sort of bringing extra context to how he wrote things and why he wrote them, uh, right. the Tolkien professor does a fantastic job of doing that. Yeah, I may I may give that a try. Like I've actually got, I, I'm still trying to work my way through the Silmarillion. I had to put it aside for a while, but I actually found a, an audio version of it on YouTube. So I've kind of been, I've kind of restarted reading it again. Mm-hmm. But while like I'm reading the book and also have my my headset on, listening to. The audio version of it so i'm i'm, I'm kind of like reading the book like using training wheels kind of thing but it's like honestly if i don't do that i will never get through that book so it's, it it's, is it's, just it I, I i i i read that book and i just can't believe that um he would have ever intended that to be published it's it sounds an awful lot like this is a lot of excessive world building knowledge that he needs to use as sort of a foundation um, to talk about other stories in the future and to, to sort of flesh out Lord of the Rings and Hobbit. Um, but like, seriously, like it was like, it's like the rough notes of like something that you use to build upon the next thing. You don't sort of compile the rough yeah. notes into a novel. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, like I know, like um, Christopher Christopher Tolkien, I think I think helped in editing that and like getting it ready for publication. But you know, maybe my opinion of it will change once I've gotten to the end of it. I don't I don't know. I hope it does. Um, but right now, it's just like it's the opposite of Lord of the Rings, where it's like uh, like when I read Lord of the Rings for the first time, I couldn't put it down. Yeah. Right. This thing here, it's it's everything I can do to not put it down. <laughs> Good point. Anyway, look, we're um, as you mentioned, this is the last thing we're recording, and we're already like right up to our time limit. So we're gonna have to cut this a little bit short and jump right into our main segment. All right, we are here for Let's Talk About, and we are here for our third installment on army types. And what type of army are we going to talk about today, Andrew? The Linebreaker. The Linebreaker. Um, so the Linebreaker, uh, also sometimes called the Alpha Strike mm-hmm. list, it, it's, it's a list that's all about smashing your enemy battle line. Um, and usually in like one or two decisive charge. And depending on how you build your army, it's most often seen as like a small group of mounted heroes, usually supported by some mounted warriors, uh, which are designed to like be maneuverable and they can attack the enemy's battle line wherever they want kind of thing. There are a couple more niche type lists that are usually uh, involving monsters, but I don't think we're really going to talk about those uh, per se in, in this discussion because by far the more common in the current edition is the hero line breaker. Um, what are some of those other lists, so Andrew, that we see? Uh, some of the other lists are the um, the Radagast Alliance, so Eagles, essentially, and Fangorn with the Ents. Uh, we're avoiding the discussions on these two because they play they play very differently because a Linebreaker list utilizes its troops in a, a bit of a unique way compared to other lists. Uh, and because, you know, the, the Eagles and the Ents don't really have that option. They, yeah. they have different tactics and they play very differently. They don't and have the might either, usually, right? They usually don't. So they are a line breaker in a sense that they are a very small, compact force of very strong models that sort of smashes into your opponent's army. But, like, Ents are generally considered mid-tier. And unless you're an exceptionally strong general... Eagles also fall in the mid-tier. So we're talking more about um, a linebreaker list that can easily hit top tier. uh, And that's more focused around um, mounted heroes or monsters coupled with lots of uh, a number of infantry enemy warriors. And just to just to finish off the the intro part of this, uh, the over the overall strategy of this type of army is to break your opponent as quickly as possible. Like that's the aim of of this type of army is to move in, charge, do massive damage, charge again, and by the second charge, you've you've broken your opponent. And the, at that point, it's 
you know, it's mop up pretty much. But pretty why don't you much. go into some some of the lengthy uh, list of strengths that this army has? <laughs> he's he's making fun of the fact that we've actually done this section <laughs> once. We just forgot to hit the record button, <laughs> and we added like three things on the fly. Pretty much, yeah. All right, so the line breaker is designed to focus on chewing through enemy infantry. Uh, ideally, defense six or lower. And it's not surprising to see, you know, 12 to 16 enemy warriors die in a single turn uh, to your heroes alone. Okay. And the other thing that's very characteristic of a Lion Breaker is it has a large amount of might at its disposal. Because you're almost always going for those three might heroes. And as, you know, as Dawn said, um, you're spending probably between, you're spending at least 50%, if not more, of your points in heroes. So you could be seeing yourself with upwards of 9 to 15 might at a 700 point uh, limit. And yeah, and you need the might, right? Because, like, basically the engine that you're stoking is the is the heroic move and the heroic combat. Like you have to have the might available to do those two things or mm -hmm. else this list just doesn't work. Agreed, you want that, you're gonna have the liberal heroic combats because your goal is to grind down your enemy infantry uh, as quickly as possible to even up the numbers between you and your opponent. Uh, the line breaker element, now we're talking the mounted heroes, uh, is often a very fast um, component to your army. So what happens is with that 10 inch move or 12 inches in case in, in some cases, is that you're able to dictate when the charge happens and where it happens. And this is crucial um, for a successful engagement because um, you don't want to be charging your line breaker element in, getting it overwhelmed by enemy infantry and you just lose your heroes. It's when you charge and where you charge, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. And that's why it's so key to the line breaker list. And the other two things we added in are, uh, in my personal experience, I've found that line breaker armies tend to pick up high amounts of VPs in games, right? Yeah. And that's in large part because they do two things exceptionally well. They break your opponent's army, and they kill your enemy leader. And those are two things. And they things, do it very quickly. And they do it very quickly. And those are two things that are always a part of the VP scoring in every mission. Um, so seeing a line breaker list on the table, you know you're going to be struggling to pick up your VPs. Okay. And the last thing is we talked about in our introductory section, we talked about um, the concept of momentum, that idea of you and your opponent are pulling at the same shared source of uh, motivation as well as flow and, you know, as the Green Dragon calls it, tempo. A line breaker list can very quickly throw the momentum in your favor with even just one successful charge or even just the ability to dictate when that charge happens. And when you, uh, running a line breaker list, kill 12 models, 12 enemy warriors in one turn, that handedly gives you uh, the momentum. Um, and it's very difficult for your opponent to sort of claw that back. Yeah, because it's like, oh, I just lost an entire warband. All right, then. Exactly. So, do you, Don, do you want to talk about some of the weaknesses? There aren't many. There's like almost none, but I guess we had to put something <laughs> together for this section. Well, there certainly are weaknesses. There aren't a lot, but they are um, significant weaknesses. And the first one uh, is army size. Like, this is probably the smallest um, number of models of all of the army types we have. 
And that's simply because you're spending over 50% of your available points on heroes, sometimes well over 50% of your points. Oftentimes, like the warriors in your army are just uh, token, really. They're more uh, to protect the flanks of your your heroes than really intended to play a huge role mm-hmm. in, in the overall strategy. So this is a this is a definite weakness, and it does come across in one type of army or rather one type of mission, and that is any mission uh, that requires board control. It, it can be a struggle for the line breaker list because with so few units, you know, your whole strategy is about defeating the other army. It's not about board control. So you can it can be a bit of a challenge in some of those missions. Um, the other thing is, uh, Line Breaker, it really has only one strategy, right? And it's to land a devastating charge. So yep. there's kind of two weaknesses here. And that and one of them is that sometimes if you're playing against a savvy opponent who is setting up well for your charge, it can take a while for you to eventually find the optimum charge and charge in. So what can happen is like if you have a savvy opponent they can sort of like make the they can put off the charge by maneuvering to receive it and eventually as the line breaker you have no choice you have to charge in it's the only strategy you really have your entire army depends on or your entire tactic is to um do that devastating charge so you eventually you have to do it and and on the flip side of that is if you have a bad charge it can kill your army like if the other guy if the other guy gets all over you like if you have a have a half decent charge and then the other guy wins priority on the next turn or wins the um uh the roll off for the uh, heroic move and they get all over you it it could be lights out for you on turn two like if you lose all your mounts you know all that kind of thing it'll it'll take you out of the it'll take you out of the game really quickly yeah i mean the other component to that is in that bad charge is if you have to blow might to win fights or to kill that sort of first set of enemy warriors to be able to jump into the next set if you're blowing that might uh, in those situations, you're really um, limiting your ability to continue grinding through your opponent because you're losing uh, the heroic combats, which you so desperately need. And yeah, you kind of need to have your your first charge kind of, it's almost dependent that it go well and that you not need to spend a lot of might getting kills. If yeah. you can get off a really good charge and not have to spend a lot of might to get any kills on your first turn, and you get the second charge in on the second turn, that's when you can actually start spending might to to get kills. Because if you get two charges in a row with this army, you should be able to break the other guy's force most agreed. times. Yeah, agreed. Um, like one successful charge of like killing 12 to 16 models that generally, unless you're playing against a horde, will even up the model count differential. Yeah. Uh, but because you have more heroes, uh, it puts things well in your favor. And at getting that second charge, you, you've pretty much lights out your opponent. 
uh, again, unless it's a horde. And so one of the greatest, I would say another weakness of the line breaker is definitely when you're relying upon your mounted heroes doing the killing, having them dismounted uh, by an enemy arrow or a monster hurl, like that kind of thing, it's... Or a black dart. Or a black dart with the new FAQ, that's right. Having that happen is is pretty crippling. And I say this because a horse increases a increases a hero's lethality by 50%, right? Because it gives you a whole bunch more attacks when you have the knockdown, right? But it actually increases the lethality of some heroes by even more because you have lances, which only work on the charge, right? And so if you, and when I say charge, mounted charge. So if you lose your horse early, you lose your lance which means you're just some strength four uh, chump charging in, uh, and you also lose the plus one attack and that knockdown that I talked about. So you're using a lot of a lot of lethality, and I'm pretty sure it's more than 50%. So you really want to protect your, your horses and not lose them before the charge. Uh, but yeah, it is a big weakness to a line breaker list. Why don't you carry on with a little bit about building a linebreaker army? All right. Let's talk about building a linebreaker worthy of me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the goal here is to spend probably between 50 and 70% of your points on heroes. Okay. And you want more heroes, the better. So you will probably have one tier one hero and a bunch of tier two heroes, okay? This isn't all gonna be about, let's grab as many tier one heroes as possible. That's not the goal here. Your goal is to put as many heroes on the table that you know that have a lot of uh, killing power for their points. It's all about points efficiency with the line breaker. So you're looking at spending anywhere between 50 and 70% of your points on mounted heroes in this particular case. You want to spend the rest of your points on ideally fairly resilient warriors. Defense six at a minimum, defense seven if you can, even a defense seven with a shield wall. Uh, and always making sure your warriors have shields. And why is because, as we talk about later on in the tactics, shielding warriors are really important for this style of army. And when we talk about those heroes, you really want your heroes to be able to chew through defense seven and defense eight ideally on a five which means you want plus wounding weapons you want strength five base two-handed with burly that kind of thing because you really want to be able to hit even the most resilient models in the game um, like your like your dead of dunharo your iron hills you want to be able to hit them and kill them on fives because if your line breaker is being stalled by a shield wall it's a big problem and it can't so you got to find ways around that you also want to pick up a couple extra tricks to your army. You still want that 33% bow limit because you want options, right? You want to, um, having those bows allows you to fire at enemy heroes who are on mounts, right? So it gives you that advantage. Uh, and you also want to take um, at least two or three mounted warriors. And the reason for that is you, like missions like Reconnoiter, running them off the table, uh, objective-based missions, it gives you a little bit of board control. You're not going to get a tremendous amount, but every little bit counts. And those are good investment points. And lastly, with every line breaker, you must have a banner. 
You must, must, must. This is the list that desperately needs a banner more than all the others. And the reason for this is you want that banner firmly you know, placed directly behind where all your warriors are. And that banner is going to give an extra dice in the dual roll to win those combats. And that's critical. Because you have that tier 2 warrior, or tier 2 hero, sorry, that generally only has two attacks, right? You get a third attack on the charge with the mount, and then you get the fourth dice uh, from the banner, right, in the form of that reroll. So all of a sudden, you're sending that four dice, you're, you're creating that 4v4 dice situation where your two tier 2 hero is charging two enemy warriors who are going to have two spear supports so your opponent's going to have four dice in the dual roll you've got your three attacks from the warrior plus the extra dice from the banner so that's going to give you four dice versus four dice and because you have higher fight value you're going to be able to have a much higher probability of winning that fight right yeah and we mentioned before too about uh, one of the things that can go wrong is if you have a bad charge yeah. and having a banner is just kind of insurance against a bad charge. Yep. Bingo. No, totally agree. And so that's, those are sort of the, the, the general ways I would look at building out a, a, a line breaker. So Don, do you want to get us started with the strategies, the strategies, the stratagems? That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, we we already know what this army is about. We already talked about it. Devastating charge, blah blah blah. Okay. So the thing is with with the devastating charge part of this is you basically want to keep as much of the other guy's army out of the game as possible while you're destroying it. So mm -hmm. the best way of doing that is if you imagine the other guy has a battle line right you mm -hmm. don't want to charge right into the center of the front of his battle line you want to hit him on the flank one flank or the other mm -hmm. because then you have like a small amount of units although a ton of points hitting the like a small part of his army and mm -hmm. you know for all of the units on the other end of his line well they're not participating in the fight. So you have a lot more of the points in your army fighting far fewer points in his army. It's basically the whole idea of attacking in the flank. Um, undoubtedly, you're gonna have some warriors in your, in your list as well. Mm -hmm. um, one of the common ways uh, to use them is basically you're you're gonna put them on the sides like on the on your own flanks of your heroes to protect your heroes from counter charge but when you're doing that you still want to engage um, like the least amount of the opposition as possible because they're just warriors they can die at the you know toss of a hat basically mm -hmm. so you have to be much more careful with your warriors they just still do play a very important part not only offensively but defensively they're there for to prevent your heroes from getting overwhelmed and and dehorsed and so on yeah um going further with warriors so like you probably will have like a small amount of warriors that are on foot and when and if they get into the battle it's like basically what you want to do is you're not expecting these warriors in your army to do any of the killing you're ba you're basically 
using them to prevent the rest of your army from being overwhelmed. So you're, you're, you're basically using them to occupy part of the enemy force while your heroes are like grinding the rest of their army apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like basically what you want to do with your, with your warriors that are equipped with shields is this is where you go into one versus two. So you're moving your one warrior with a shield to contact two of the enemy model. And when it comes around to the duel, you shield. And in doing this, your, your small number of warriors are occupying like double their number of enemy warriors and with shielding you still have like a realistic chance of not dying but you're doing the main thing and that's just you're holding down like a significant part of the enemy force while your heroes do the work exactly so a couple of points i wanted to make there you know in 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 the, the hitting hit the flanks sort of strategy you really do want the bulk of your warriors to sort of be on either the left or the right flank. They want to be the ones that are going to be holding up the, the majority of your opponent's army while your heroes are hitting that flank, right? Whether that be your right mm-hmm. or your left flank, okay? And it's something to note is that you don't want to throw all your warriors at your opponent's battle line. You want to put the least amount of warriors possible on your opponent's battle line, that way you're preserving your warriors for as long as possible, right? By minimizing that duel role, uh, by minimizing the duels that come out of that warrior on warrior because your warriors aren't going to be doing the killing, as you mentioned, Don. Mm-hmm. So why put them in those situations where they could be killed uh, when their main goal is to support the line breaker and, and let it do its job? Okay. Yeah, I think I think the only time you really want to bring your warriors into the fight, and I'm talking about warriors that aren't part of your mounted right. contingent. Right. So the only time you want to bring them into the fight is when your charging heroes look like they're starting to get in danger of being overwhelmed by enemy numbers. Then, So you want to keep them close enough to the enemy that when you need to move up and get involved, you can get involved. Um, but... Basically, you, you're waiting for the right time uh, if it ever comes. It's like, okay, now is the time. Um, you know, my guys are in, in potential danger here, so mm-hmm. I'm going to move up and engage. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and also when we're talking about the, the shielding, right, because uh, that's why it's so important to have your, your, your warriors have shields because that shielding rule is so critical. Uh, and that's in large part because... When you're throwing all your warriors, like this, generally you do this section probably maybe round two or round three of the engagement where your opponents brought mm-hmm. their numbers to bear. Your goal is just to tie up as many of your opponent as possible, many opponents' models as possible, and let your warrior, your, your heroes, um, cherry pick the combats that they really want to fight in. And if you lose a bunch of your hero or your, your, your bunch of your warriors with shields, not a big deal because you're probably going to kill more than your opponent. Yeah, it's, it's kind of on like the first important turn is the turn of the charge. Mm-hmm. And it's usually the second or third turn where the the force that is being charged has a chance to turn the tables. So it's like either like the turn after the charge or the turn after that where you're going to bring your warriors and, and, and engage the enemy. Exactly. Now, there's a third strategy here that we want to talk about, and that is sacrifice where needed. And this largely talks about the warriors in your army. 
okay? Your, your warriors are fantastic when you're throwing them into situations that you don't want your heroes involved in, okay? So when we talked about um, building a line breaker, we talked about um, you, you have a, only really one tier one hero and a bunch of tier two heroes, right? But your opponent may have a very strong tier one hero that's more than capable of killing your tier twos. That's something yeah. you want to avoid at all possible. Okay, so you'd rather your, you know, seven to 11 point warrior die instead of your 80 to 110 point hero. Okay, so in that situation, you sacrifice where needed. So you say to yourself the following. If this enemy hero, hero combats, am I okay with the extra movement they're getting out of this? If the answer is yes, you throw one enemy, you throw one of your warriors in there and you force the heroic combat um, where they're not going to maximize their kills. They're not going to get the four kills from charging two of yours, killing both of them, and then charging the next two, right? So you're going to limit them. Mm -hmm. You're going to reduce it down by one warrior kill, okay? The second point is, am I concerned that the heroic combat is going to get them into one of my heroes and kill them? If the answer is yes, you throw as many warriors as you need to to stop the combat from being successful to prevent them stop from even the calling combat it. yeah yeah just prevent them from even calling the combat in the first place so if you know that let's say an azog on on the white warg has charged your line uh, or, or or is you've won the heroic move off you get to tie him up that that azog and white warg you know that if he charges any of your tier two heroes they're dead guaranteed so you know azog has three attacks so you would throw four warriors in base contact with Azog. This prevents Azog from being able to break out because he can't kill four warriors. He only has three attacks. And therefore, uh, you know that you've locked him down for at least one more turn to let your heroes keep har uh, reaping the harvest on his uh, your opponent's warriors. Yeah, the same can be said too. Like if I'm the defending army and let's say I'm playing dwarves and mm -hmm. I have a defense of seven, okay? So suddenly, you know, it's a lot harder for you to get the kill because maybe the hero that I'm looking at doesn't have a lance. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, so you're going to call a heroic combat and kill as many as you can. Well, I may want to actually throw in like an extra guy into that combat. Um, just to try to prevent you from killing all of the opponents in, in that duel so you can actually run off of that heroic combat because once you can stop the guy from making use of the heroic combat you're you're really going a long way towards um, curtailing the the charge uh yeah that, that's absolutely i agree with that 100 percent um and then there's the fourth tactic uh, or strategy and that is uh, something that's sort of unique to uh, the line breaker, and that is, I wouldn't say unique, but it's more heavily emphasized, and that is the feint, okay? Uh, and the feint sort of plays out in two ways. You have a, generally a mounted um, line breaker element, and you're going to keep your, initially you're going to keep your heroes behind your battle line, right? And, and generally in the middle. And that way your opponent really doesn't know which flank that they're going to go towards because you could quickly move 10 inches to the right or 10 inches to the left and your opponent's slower moving infantry uh, have a much harder time responding to that. So being able to sort of feint 
being able to go left and then right, or even start to slowly move right and then shoot left, um, can be a really strong way of throwing your opponent off, especially if that's coupled with, let's, let's say, a heroic march, right? Um, because them expecting you to hit the right flank, then all of a sudden veering to hit the left flank, They've prepared their charge incorrectly. They're down there scattering to fix the issue, especially if their heroes are not mounted. They really can't uh, respond to you as quickly as, as what you can do. Yeah, it's like, you know, it, it's shocking how far you can move like a mounted contingent with a with a heroic march like in yeah. a recent tournament well not too recent because it was last year um like when i was playing with my angmar force and it was mostly orcs and wargs and you know that kind of stuff like i had a contingent of um a warg or an orc captain on warg a wild warg chieftain some um warg riders some wargs as kind of my mounted contingent and I was playing against an elf player, and what I did was I moved I moved my chaff orcs like right up into his face to have a line on line engagement with him. But but that other stuff, like I heroic marched with it and I moved so fast and I got right around behind him and charged him in the rear while I charge in the front with my my orc chaff. Devastating. And it's just amazing how far your mounted models can move with a march. With that feint tactic, you use one point of might and all of a sudden the bulk of your army is in a completely different spot on the board. Agreed. Now I will say you did not charge with a heroic march, did you? you just no, 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 just just basically covering ground to right. get across the table. Mm -hmm. And then it's like you're you're already in a completely different spot now and you know, it, it's hard for your opponent to redress their lines because they're also being charged from the front. Agreed. Very much so agreed. Uh, the other component to the fainting is the old heroic combat feints, or some have called the bulging. And that's where you've got your tier one hero who's got that high fight value, your fight six, fight seven, potentially even fight eight. You've charged in on your enemy lines and you've called a heroic combat and you are positioned that if you win the combat and you kill a bunch of guys, you could leap into an enemy hero. And sometimes you just wanna subtly comment about that, right? Say, oh look, your, your hero's right there. Making it an eluded, you're alluding to the fact that you could do it. And this is especially important when you, um, when you've, when you're lost the priority rule, right? So you, you've charged, they have no ability to react to you. Uh, so what you've essentially said to them is, now by sort of hinting at that or alluding to it, is they'll kind of have to, if they don't put two and two together on their own, they'll strike with their hero, right? Because they need to up the fight value to sort of match yours. You, you've made the idea that you may charge, right? But the goal is you're not really charging. You're forcing the might, if you're forcing them to burn might, and then you'll go charge more warriors, right? Which yeah. Is so if you important. if you have a big hero, and and you charge like two of my you know lame duck warriors, mm -hmm. right? And obviously you're going to call a heroic combat and probably kill both of them. Mm -hmm. And if I have one of my mid tier heroes in range of of your your uh, second charge, th this is what you're talking about. You want to make yeah. your opponent aware that like, hey, you know, 
I might just be able to charge that guy. And so then I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna call a strike and use a point of might. Exactly. So what had happened is, I give an example of this, is I charged my Aragorn King LSR into uh, an elven battle line, right? I called her a combat and Elrond was behind. And I, I, I had dismounted him with a, a lucky bow shot. And my opponent, you know, noticed that Aragorn with his four dice in the dual roll and wielding Anduril probably will handedly kill my fight five elves uh, and charge me. And if Elrond loses the fight, it's eight dice to kill Elrond on a four and the odds are very good. And so he calls a heroic strike. I kill those two elves, and what do I do? I back up outside of the control zones, I shoot seven inches to the right, and I charge two other elves, totally bypassing Elrond, but I force the might, right? And so all of a sudden, Elrond burned a point of might and got nothing out of it. And that's Yeah, because they're, they're forced to do it as a defensive tactic, because as we've pointed out time and time again, Mounted heroes are devastating, like one wrong move and they'll kill anything. Exactly. So yeah, so it's all about the feints. You can move huge swaths of your army very quickly, or you can just move um, feinting your heroes to move to the left side of the, ar- the, the your line or the right side, and it throws your opponents off. Uh, and that feinting is a really big advantage to your linebreaker force, so you got to make use of it. So let's jump into rock paper scissors all right so this is the section where we talk about uh, the army type we're discussing and how it does versus the other army types uh, that we have outlined so as this series goes on um, there's going to be quite a bit of repetition in Mm -hmm. in this so we're gonna we're gonna start trimming down uh, these sections uh, at least for the ones that we've already discussed so for the first one for example it's shield wall well we already kind of discussed how they do against line breaker uh, in the shield wall episode so mm-hmm. you know hopefully you've already listened to that if you haven't um, Give then it a go listen. check out that episode yeah um, but generally it's uh, against a shield wall it's a really good matchup usually for the line breaker um, it's one of the army types that this army is designed so well to play against yeah. um, basically you need to push on them quickly and with confidence uh, hit the flank using the rest of your warriors to block the opposing army. So very much like what we've outlined in in the strategy section earlier. Yeah, very quick, very simple. Um, The next uh, army type is the Horde. And again, we've talked about that in the Horde episode. So uh, give it a listen if you haven't already. Uh, And this one, to summarize, uh, can either be um, a devastating matchup for you uh, if they overwhelm your heroes, or something that goes quite well in your favor, and that, as we've already talked about, is if you are successful in getting that second charge, right? The first charge, the Horde army just accepts, um, but it's the second charge. If you, if they can prevent you from getting that second charge, it can go very bad for you very quickly. Yeah, and the Horde army, unlike a lot of other armies, they can accept the first charge and lose 16 models and still crush you. Exactly. So you again, you still want to hurl combat the flanks. You want to have your uh, your your wall of warriors there again, minimizing contact with your horde flank. Uh, and it's all about trying to use the horde's bulk against it. 
Um, unfortunately, with this list, as we've talked about, if it's an objective-based game, you have dreadful board control, and it's a huge uphill struggle against a horde army. Okay, so line breaker. Um, so if it's line breaker versus line breaker, so this is pretty much like a push. A lot of this comes down to uh, either the skill of the two players that are involved in the game uh, or what units they are specifically using and if they have any certain abilities um, that are particularly good against their opponent. Quite often, um, assuming, assuming all is equal here, it's probably going to come down to who uses their warriors better and who maybe focuses a little more attention on the mission. Um, you know, warriors can be used to secure objectives. Uh, and limit the effectiveness of enemy heroes, which we already talked about with shielding and yep. sacrificing, um, and generally keep the pressure off of their heroes. So if you're able to micro your warriors really well, that is probably going to be the deciding factor in line breaker versus line breaker. And, you know, you, you make a good point. And it's something we sort of alluded to, um, that a line breaker force when you compose it at an armula stage, is all about composing the right heroes, the most cost-efficient heroes. Um, but when you're playing the game, it's all about how you micro your warriors. That's the real strength to a linebreaker. Because again, charging your yeah. heroes in and calling heroic combat and rolling a bunch of dice is fairly easy, right? Like tactic, like like skill-wise. Yeah. But it's all about how can you stretch your hero, your your warriors lives as long as possible for your very unskilled line breaker to just do what it needs to do right? so oh, when you're playing doing. against a line breaker army um it's it's all about looking like one or two moves ahead mm -hmm. agreed now let's talk about the leaf blower okay so if you're a line breaker force it's all about the march you need to march and get into your opponent's face as quickly as possible and you need to be throwing at least three or four in the ways in front of your mounted heroes to preserve those mounts for as long as possible. Because a, a leaf blower list generally will have um, the heroic accuracy, so you've got to throw enough in the ways in front that it's still going to make that, even with a heroic accuracy, it's going to make it a risky proposition um, or a, a losing proposition, I should say, to hit one of your horses. And if a leaf blower list has sort of spread itself out, you need to sort of say to yourself, where is the most amount of VPs on the table in terms of enemy leader kill, in terms of banner, that kind of thing. And you want to zero your in your army into that section and ignore the rest of your opponent's army. Your goal is to get those leader kill, get the, um, the, uh, the banner kill and break him. So if you can secure that on one flank, go for it. All right. Um, and expect that you're going to, at some point, lose your mounts, right? Like their, their leaf blower list is designed to dismount heroes. But guess what? Your heroes are still strong enough to kill their infantry, right? Their enemy warriors. You just won't be killing them fast enough. So again, it's really on you to get into combat as quickly as possible. That's the most important thing. And... This is really against evil leaf blower lists, and we're talking about Corsairs, we're talking about um, Isengard, Legendary Legion, the Assault on Helm's Deep. 
um, those high crossbow uh, builds or high throwing weapon builds, um, don't be surprised if you charge into combat, you don't go anywhere. Because what's going to happen, a favorite tactic for those types of armies is they will let you charge one or two models and they'll just shoot those enemy models, their models, and kill them to prevent you from heroic combating. And their goal is to not only shoot their own models and kill them, but it's also to shoot you right afterwards and dis demount you, right, and dismount you. So uh, don't be surprised if you're not able to call those heroic combats as frequently. Um, just be vigilant and, and you spend the might instead on the heroic, uh, heroic moves to keep getting yourself back into combat. All right, so I'll move on to talk about uh, playing against a mobile army. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, next to playing Linebreaker on Linebreaker, which is which is kind of, uh, like I said, it's kind of a push, but mobile is probably one of the most difficult uh, army types for, for Linebreaker to play against because Linebreaker is basically um, all about getting a hold of the enemy's warriors and killing as many of them as quickly as possible. It's easy to do that when they're standing in a line of battle, but when they're all also mounted on horses, it's a lot harder suddenly because you have a lot harder time lining up the charge where you want it because the other army is very fluid and moves just as fast as you do. Um, and second of all, you don't get your cavalry bonus usually because they're probably all mounted too, being a mobile force. So 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 not having your cavalry bonus means that, you know, your your heroic combats are just not gonna work as well as they normally would. The, the upside is that because they're all mounted, they're probably going to have a fairly small army as well. Mm -hmm. So if you can still get your heroes into the desirable combats, you can still churn through a lot of their um, units. It's just not going to be nearly as many as, as if you were charging an infantry-based army. And a lot of the same rules um, and strategies come into play here you know like you're you're using your warriors again to shield your your heroes um you're looking for your advantage advantageous combats you're using uh, heroic combats to slingshot your heroes you know go after their mid-tier heroes with your with your big guns and take them out remove their might from the table um and again, this one here is board control missions can be can be tough against an army like this. Uh, probably still going to be outnumbering you, and because they have just as much mobility as you do, uh, it makes that type of mi a mission difficult for you. So you really got to pay attention to the missions and go where the VPs are highest and try to maximize your VPs as much as possible. There is something else I want to say about this this matchup, and that is, this is one of those few matchups where you really want to take your tier one hero and have them go here enemy hero hunting almost immediately, and that's because when a mobile army gets the charge on you, that that cav charge on your whole army is gonna really grind down your warriors very quickly, right? It makes a mockery of that defense six, defense seven, you're rocking. So you really Yeah, because it's just a whole bunch of 1v1 fights. It's like not what you want. Exactly that. And so you really, 
you really want to be able to bring your tier one hero up against your opponent's heroes and start murdering them as quickly as possible to, to minimize the amount of might that's on the table for your opponent. And that will then give you that chance to sort of come back into the game. And this is also one of those games where you want to use a lot of your other tools, right? Like you've got that 33% bow limit. Don't be afraid to stand there and just shoot, right? You're looking to dismount enemy heroes or, or any other mounted models that you can. Um, don't be afraid to start using a bit of shield wall tactics where you're looking for an anchor point, a couple pieces of terrain to sort of anchor your smaller force behind. Um, use whatever tools you have available uh, to keep yourself going and don't stand in the open and try and fight this army. You are going yeah, to get grounded. It's, it's far less of, uh, like you said earlier, like the tactics uh, of this army can be fairly simple, like just charging in and doing heroic combats. It's, it's not all that difficult to master. This, this uh, match up here against a mobile army is like, you really have to play it smart. You really right. have to dig a bit deeper, like tactically in this matchup. Agreed. All right, so let's move on to the last army type, and that is the combined arms. And this can be a challenging game, depending upon sort of what tools your opponents brought to the table, right? So, you know, some of the other army types, we talked about how magic, you know, has more or good, so-so effect against, let's say, like a horde army, but against a line breaker, magic can be quite devastating. Lots of juicy targets there. Lots of juicy targets. For one, a Sorceress Blast to dismount your heroes very easily. All they need to do is catch a warrior and throw a warrior into your hero, and all of a sudden you're not on a horse anymore, right? And the other thing is you coming to the you have to come to the realization that your tier one hero is gonna be transfixed most of the game, right? And it's gonna get it's gonna be on you to be able to break the line in such a way that you can get warriors, ideally, onto that wizard or that spellcaster as quickly as you possibly can to free up your tier one hero because you've got to remove magic from the equation because you're going to start losing a, a big portion of the points you've spent in the game uh, sitting there doing not much of anything, okay? So the other thing is your opponent and you are probably going to have comparable shooting, but the difference is your opponent's probably going to have blinding light and you aren't, which means they'll win the shooting game 10 times out of 10 in that scenario. So just start marching and getting into combat with your opponent, okay? Again, putting as many in the ways in front of your, um, your mounted heroes as possible. Your opponent, as in a combined arms, may or may not have heroic accuracy. So throwing three or four in the ways may be more than sufficient to keep your guys mounted, all right? Um, using, you, your opponent generally only has one or two uh, heroes, like real combat heroes, um, that are super effective. So again, use your warriors to lock them down um, to really mitigate what they can and can't do uh, and bring your heroes to bear to start grinding down your opponent. Because again, a combined arms sort of focuses on that tier one hero plus a wizard. When I'm talking about tier one hero, I'm talking about a Prince Emmerhill, I'm talking about a bard, I'm talking about a uh, Aragorn King Elisar as your kind of combined arms. And then... Their model count is going to be higher than yours, but not overly so, right? You might They might have more like 15 to 16 models more than you, but guess what? Your Lion Breaker army is designed to kill 12 a turn at a minimum. And so you get that good charge off, 
um, without being blocked, you can even out the model counts very quickly, right? So don't be too um, feeling, um, don't, don't let the momentum throw in your opponent's favor just because they outnumber you. You can very much bring it back. That's the design of the line breaker force. And then lastly, this is regarding siege engines, okay? Um, a combined arms force will generally have a siege engine of some kind, whether it be a heavy siege engine at high points value or a small siege engine at low points value. You really want to play the three inch game. And that is you want to spread your forces out as much as you can. Um, especially so if the siege engine has splash damage, like an AOE effect. Or a throwback. Or a throwback, yes. Um, and if it has a throwback, you have to watch your angles of what your army is in relation to the siege engine. But that's a different thing. And then the other thing is you always want to have a warrior three inches behind your mounted hero. And that's because if your opponent shoots at a hero with a large siege engine, which they invariably will, uh, if they don't roll that six to hit... Um, for the, uh, the battlefield target, right? Because your heroes, your whole army is a battlefield target, which means they have to roll on a separate table. On a one, it's a miss. On a two to five, it hits someone of your choosing within three inches or six inches, depending upon the accuracy of the siege engine. And on a six, it's a direct hit, and you really can't do much about that. More often than not, they're going to roll a two to five. So if they roll it between that two to five, you want to kick that hit over to your warrior, that's three inches behind you, and if that person dies, well, they killed a warrior, and that's a pretty poor um, trade-off in terms of points. Just a caveat to that. So that warrior that who's the sacrificial warrior that you're keeping three inches behind your hero, mm -hmm. make sure that that warrior is within three inches of at least one other warrior as well. Otherwise, the guy will just target the warrior and then get a two to five and put whatever and put it on your hero because he's the only one within range. That's true. Um, the other thing to note is that as you get closer, um, and there's a reason why you have bows, is that your opponent may just shoot their wizard forward or their spellcaster forward and compel that warrior model closer. And in doing so, you're now stuck because if he shoots at your hero, your hero's getting hit. Whether that's gonna get hit by the direct shot or whether that's gonna get hit by the hero that just got pulled or the warrior that just got pulled within you know two inches of you, your warrior's your hero's going down. So once you get to the point where your enemy wizard's starting to come out and do those tricksy moves, push fast into your opponent's battle line to avoid getting hit hard by the siege engine. Yeah, I mean, against a combined arms, to me, it all comes down to like a fairly simple um, situation. And that is that the combined arms, you know, they've got a lot of different things in their army. Um, they've got a siege engine, they probably have a bit of magic, they've got a big hero, they've got some shooting, they've got it all, right? Mm -hmm. But their their goal is to either use those tools to somehow like win the mission, like play the mission, mm -hmm. and use those tools to, to win the mission, or 
against your line breaker, use those tools to prevent the big charge. Mm-hmm. If if you're in a posi- position where you're going to get off the big charge, well, you've done everything right and your strategy is going to work because they have to use their tools to stop the big charge. If they don't stop the big charge, then uh, like those tools are largely useless. Correct. Agreed. Alrighty, so let's move on to the last section, which are examples, where we talk about, uh, where we talk about one or two different types of armies that we think make rather ideal um, line breakers. So, Don, do you want to start us off? I will start off with probably the most well represented line breaker in the game and that is Rohan and right 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 now it's all about the riders of Theoden Mm -hmm. I mean uh, I've heard other podcasts talk about it and the fact that the riders of Theoden legendary legion is so good that nobody just plays Rohan anymore it's either riders of Theoden or a different army (laughs) um this army combines um, some ludicrously high amount of might, like just tons of different heroes with three might, and Gambling's standard, which allows for an unrivaled amount of might compared to your opponents. If you go with the Riders of Theoden, you'll benefit from even more free might. This is probably the best army out there at chewing through enemy warriors. This is probably the only mobile line breaker list where even all of your warriors are are mobile and your warriors are strength four and fight four on the charge with this list, which is incredibly solid. Um, And these models also bring some shooting, which gives them some flexibility in that way. The only downside to this, if you can call it a downside, is that this army doesn't have any like plus to wound modifying weapons. So you may end up burning your might uh, a little faster than you normally would against high defense models. Like there's no, there's no uh, lances here. There's no two-handed weapons here, that mm-hmm. type of thing. Now, I'll say a couple things. The the Rohan army bonus gives them plus one strength in the turn they charge. So heroes become strength five. So on the charge, they're able to effectively wound those defense seven uh, warriors uh, as the same with the same probability, which is wounding on fives and sixes, uh, as you would see a strength four hero with a lance, right? Which is why it's so critical for your opponent to stop you from getting the charge because you don't get that strength bonus. So again, those defense seven models can be a huge thorn in the side to those Rohan heroes, right? And, and the other thing I'll make note of is uh, this army only has fight five heroes. So coming up against stuff like elves with fight five or even... Um, Gilgalad's Elves with Fight 6, uh, they have to heroic strike instead of heroic combat so they can guarantee those kills in the fight. Uh, and we, you know, we, we talked about um, using the Riders of Rohan um, in, in conjunction with the Rohan heroes, but you could go a different way, which is using the, um, is it the Rohirrim Guard or the Rohan Guard? Rohan Royal Guard, uh, which are already fight for. And that means on the charge, they become fight five. They've got bodyguard, uh, still only strength three. 
uh, on like base, so that becomes strength four on the charge. And so what this does is it gives you almost like mini heroes in that they don't care about terror, they have fight five on the charge, so it sort of really bolsters out your Rohan heroes uh, and makes them for uh, makes a very devastating army to play against. Lots of different ways to build a line breaker with Rohan. Very true. Uh, and let's go to the other example, which is my current uh, fave, and that's Gondor. Um, and I think it's a solid choice in that you can, it all comes down to how you want to start, and that's with your which tier one hero do you want to use? Do you want to use Aragorn King Alassar, or do you want to use Boromir of the White Tower? Uh, I'm a personal fave of Aragorn. Uh, because of the flexibility that his uh, mighty hero or free point of might every turn gives him, in addition to having Andoril and having a six-inch banner for some weird reason. Uh, and you can couple him with Huron the Tall, who gets even better when he's around Aragorn, and Faramir, who is a fantastic model um, and a fantastic third choice, because of his ability to have heroic defense and three might, so if he needs to dive into a tier one hero and, and, and take the hits for a turn by calling heroic defense, he's great for it. Um, Huron brings his plus wound modifier weapon with the burly special rule and his big old fat sword. Faramir has to use the lance. Um, and what you end up having is you have this really solid trio of heroes that you could, um, that they will murderate uh, a lot of enemy warriors very quickly and you could easily ally into Gondor because Gondor has one of the largest ally sets uh, of at least convenience and so you don't mind getting rid of their army bonus it only gives you plus one courage uh, which isn't the end of the world and this allows you to pull in stuff like Galadriel Lady of Light uh, the model that should be toned down as well as possibly even diving into fiefdoms uh, or even Rivendell okay uh, the beauty about the warriors of Minas Tirith is that they're pretty dirt cheap, eight or nine points. Um, and when I say dirt cheap, I mean you're getting a defense six model with a shield, with the shield wall special rule. And so they are fantastic at diving into uh, enemy battle lines, holding them up with a shielding, being resilient enough that they won't die very quickly, uh, and being altogether a fantastic choice and inclusion into that line breaker style list. The other alternative is to go with an even smaller list and picking up the, the guard of the fountain court for your, your guaranteed defense seven all the time with bodyguard in the fight four. But I tend to lean towards the Warriors of Minas Tirith because then you can also pick up um, a back rank of Rangers of Gondor um, to give you that, that shooting element, which is really Yeah, key. give yourself some bows as well. Exactly. And then there's also the warriors of Minas Tirith with their lances. Uh, when I say knights of Minas Tirith, sorry, with their lances, which gives you a nice little mobile element, which can help out in a pinch on, on the charge with the lance and the kill. I just want to jump in with a comment. And that was you, you talked about Faramir earlier. And it's like, I was just going to say that for a mid-tier hero, he's, he's probably one of the most flexible heroes that you often see um, in this type of build and even at lower point level games you often see Faramir as your army leader and kind of leading the charge of the a line breaker at, at a smaller tier point level tournament. Agreed. Um, now Huron tends to overshadow him 
because he's 90 points of killy awesomeness and he has his, his you know two-handed master crafted sword uh, that eventually gives him the burly rule um, and so he's a fantastic model and when he's near Aragorn King Elisar he gets five dice in the dual roll on the charge that's really hard for someone like Fer- uh, Faramir to compete with they've, they've just got like these two heroes are such v- good mid-tier heroes for for this type of build and i I guess i sort of focus more on faramir just because over the years like we've seen him so frequently so for such a long time uh here in the tall certainly excellent too maybe he does overshadow faramir but a little bit of a newer addition to the Mm -hmm. list um i'm just used to seeing faramir 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 for so long Mm -hmm. it's I find Faramir is fantastic, as you said, for his flexibility. Um, he is just that, that one hero that if I need to tie up an enemy hero, I can throw him into combat, do some heroic defenses, and I can last <clears throat> with some decent rolls from my opponent, I can last two or three rounds. Well, Faramir tying up a tier one hero for two or three rounds while my other heroes murder their infantry, that's points well spent, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Um, For sure. And he himself is not a slouch in combat. Like, if you desperately need to dehorse Faramir as quickly as you possibly can, because if you yep. don't, he is going to kill your infantry very quickly. Yeah. He's one of those heroes where <laughs> once you put him on a horse, you really, it really showcases how good being mounted is in this game. Oh, very much so. Alrighty. All right. So, shall we move on? Is that it for our uh, let's talk about uh, the line breaker? I think so. All right. We are here for all that is gold does not glitter and we are running out of uh, uh, questions uh, so it is kind of fortuitous that games workshop came out with their new faq today that's right so we have lots to talk about i am very excited are you yeah there's i don't know is it, i don't think there is any huge blockbuster changes in there um, kind of one more juicier one, which I know you're a big fan of, um, but a lot of smaller uh, sort of corner Casey type yeah, uh, clarifications. So. Yeah, definitely a lot of situational changes up or down. Um, are they going to be game changers or things that you build an army around? No, definitely yeah. not. There, there were some in there, honestly, that I was surprised that they, uh, you know, even bothered to put in there because it's it's like does this mean that people were actually trying to pull that kind of stuff like Um, you know keyword of man does this mean that it affects women yeah (laughs) it's like like, really (laughs) yeah apparently it's a requirement to, to clarify that well that's the problem when you're dealing with rules as written right like the raw technically it's not a woman woman isn't a man right yeah and it's like but you know that's the thing about rules you you can't give or take on some things it's either yes or it's a no it's very much a yes or a no and if and if you've written it ambiguously then rewrite it to the point where it's no longer ambiguous and i guess i guess it's just because they called the race men the race of men which is a is a tolkien thing rather than human exactly such yeah 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, why don't you set us set us off on, on this uh, journey of exploring the FAQ? Because we're not going to go through all of them. We're just going to touch on um, some of the ones that that are kind of noteworthy to us. Exactly. Now, I will say this. It's really important, if you haven't read the FAQ, to read it, to go over it, to sort of commit it to memory as much as you can. Because while these are small changes, they're going to create gotcha moments in a game. Uh, and you never want to get a gotcha on. Because um, that could be the difference between winning and losing. So it's really important that you know them and you're aware of them. right? So, for example, I'll throw one out. You know, Paralyze. A slight buff uh, through a clarification. Uh, and that's pretty much that models that are paralyzed do not contribute their fight value to a fight. Uh, whereas before, what you would do is, if, you know, in the case of Angmar, they paralyze your hero, um, you run a guy in to spear support your paralyzed hero, and rules is written, the hero could use their fight value in the fight, which was big. Now they can't even contribute their fight value. So all of a sudden, it's that lowly fight three, fight four guy with the spear, and you've probably thrown Gullivar into the fight ready to kill off that hero. So it is a pretty, it's a clarification, but it's also, you know, it sort of cleans up a little bit and gives it a bit of a boost. Yeah, it's, it's what it is, is it's the strongest spell in the game getting stronger. That's what it really is. Pretty much. I mean, it was always intended to be that way, but I think because people could argue it another way, it, they've, you know, it, between that and the other FAQ change for Paralyzed, which was Warhorns don't give the plus one courage if the model's paralyzed. Again, that makes a whole lot of sense. I yeah, mean, Paralyzed is Paralyzed. Exactly. I mean, they, what they probably should have done is they probably should have made the Warhorn effect an active effect, and then Paralyzed just makes all active effects non-usable. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, that makes sense, um, you know. So another one is War Beasts and Chariots. Very silly, but very simple. Uh, they stay ablaze unless they jump into water. So if you're able to set a chariot or a, or a war beast ablaze, say maybe with Saruman, um, or I think it's Cardouche as well can do it, uh, or Smog or any dragon, um, they will stay ablaze until they run through water. Uh, they cannot drop on the ground. They can't stop, drop, and roll. Uh, <laughs> no. So they are ablaze uh, until they run into water, which, you know, what is it? A strength four or strength five thing? And most of these chariots slash um, war beasts are so have so many wounds. This is a fairly inconsequential thing. I just think it's hilarious watching a Momak on fire running through an entire army for the yeah. rest of the game. <laughs> <laughs> that that's that's one that actually makes a lot of sense. So it's it a does. good clarification for sure. Um, one, uh, can I throw one in? Yeah, Let me throw one in. Yeah, let's do some alternating. Uh, War in Rohan. Rohan. War in Rohan. Mm-hmm. Um, Dunlending Huskarl, because this is the army that I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, if a Dunlending Huskarl is supporting a fight mm-hmm. and is within three inches of multiple Dunlending hero models, do they gain a bonus of plus one to their fight value for each? of the heroes due to their favor of the war chief special rule and it is no they'll only gain a bonus of plus one plus one to their fight value regardless of the number of dunlending hero models in range so probably a good clarification and i'm kind of glad that they did clarify uh that one i don't think i would even have thought of trying to stack the plus ones um but in all honesty it's like that rule is pretty rough honestly it's it's like it's it's a good rule i guess but it's 
so many qualifiers to that rule and you know for an 11 point model is uh, it's really hard to get that plus one and support with those conditions I'm, I'm now that i've read the question i'm kind of thinking maybe they should have actually allowed that like for every hero within three inches you get plus one it might have actually made that more more reasonable for the cost Really? I thought it would be pretty easy to get the plus one, right? You just got to be within range, within three inches of a Dunlending hero. And uh, you have to be supporting. Yeah, but you're always going to be supporting, right? Like Why? You've got, because you've got a Dunlending dude with a shield in front of you. You could you could try to be supporting, but you're not always going to be supporting. I, I would, I mean, this is my take on Dunlending and those, those models in particular, which is why it's very odd to give them bodyguard, is I see that model as a model that supports... Uh, initially, right? Because you've got the, the, the cheaper Dunnet Lending Warrior with the shield up front. Um, and if you need to go up against Terror, you, you open up your ranks and you send in the Huskarls. Um, but if you don't, it's, a, it's their only way of giving the army fight for, right? Which yeah, can I don't be know. quite critical. It's like, to me, would it, would it really have been like game breaking if they just gave that model fight four and just did away with that plus one fight rule? I mean, honestly. It, it, I don't think it would have. But then It's you like special rules for the sake of special rules in my mind. But the problem with doing that, though, is you would almost invalidate using Dunlending Warriors. I mean, you, there's corner cases for them, just like there's corner cases for the Dwarven Warrior because of the shield and the shielding special rule. But, like, how much of your army in a, in a Khazad-Doom list is Dwarven Warriors? Realistically. Well, this is where we get into something that is, it's like a list-building mechanic, and there are no real rules in MESBG that restrict selection of elite models like a lot of their other yeah. games have. So, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying, and it's a good point. You could just build a whole army of Dunlending Huskarls, and it's it's the same thing as, like, you see these kind of ridiculous armies where they're, it's Minas Tirith, and it's all Guard of the Fountain Court. I mean, like... I roll Give me my a eyes break. It's the same thing. Or like all Khazad Guard. It's like, yeah, they, they should really limit the number of, like for every two regular guys, you can take one, you know, elite guy or whatever. But they, they don't get into that in MESBG. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, anyway. I, I, I see the case in point with the, the Fountain Court like Guard. You know, like I see the Fountain Court Guard being um, like that, uh, those small sets of models that you see on the battlefield that are always surrounding your leader. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? They're not the entire army. Because yeah. Because a and it was not going to get into it. But yeah, yeah we're, that's we're we're going we're, off courses, which is what I always tend to do. So let's <laughs> we're, bring us back in with another one of your uh, okay. your picks. We're going off course, but in a good way and on the same page. Um, okay. So this one is actually an important one, um, especially for heirlooms, and that is models. Um, where are we going here? Uh, models in combat. Not the supporting model, but a model in combat needs to be the model to kill an enemy model carrying a light object to be able to automatically pick it up. Okay, So if your supporting model kills an enemy model with a light object, the light object just drops to the ground. No one picks it up. Whereas before it would be whoever killed the model picks up the object, right? So whether it was supporting or not, they've now changed that. And they're saying that the model has to actually physically be in base-to-base -base contact to be the one and the one to kill the enemy model to carry the light object 
before you get that automatic transfer uh, of objective. And that's an important thing because there are a couple of missions where there's a light object on the table, right? And that light mm-hmm. object is the difference between winning and losing. So if you're just like willy-nilly, I'm going to throw all my spears at, at, at killing this model. Well, if your spear support kills the model, the, the object just drops on the ground. And that's the difference between you 100% holding onto an object or a 50-50 shot at losing it from a heroic move-off. You know what I mean? Yeah, that is actually, I don't think I read that one. So I, I read where, you know, uh, they'd have another question about light objects. And, you know, if you're killed, I thought it was if you're killed by like arrow fire or nobody's in contact with you, then it drops to the ground or whatever. Maybe I read it wrong. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's spear supports. If a spear support kills a model in a combat, it's the, the object drops to the ground. Cool. Which is, which is a pretty important thing to remember. All right. Let me... Let me uh, jump on this one here, which is uh, let's go into the ring wraith. Um, oh, you're going topic there. here. <laughs> I'm going there. So this was, um, uh, I guess these. What are they? Errata and what's the other one? Designer Designer's commentary. Commentary. Yeah. Yep. So this one was from Quest of the Ring Bearer, mm-hmm. uh, and it's kind of interesting because they have this ability screech of the Nazgul mm-hmm. that they can. I believe they can do it once per game, right? Yes, correct. And it is, the question is, if a Ringwraith model declares a heroic move, can they still use their Screech of the Nazgul in the same turn? Hmm. And that's because the Screech of the Nazgul is like a channeled version of Transfix. So that would mean they're calling two heroics effectively. Yes. So the answer is yes, they can still do it. The Screech of the Nazgul allows them to use the channeled version of Transfix, though this is not itself declaring the use of a heroic channel. So you're actually kind of getting away with calling two heroics in the same phase when you do use that ability, but it is allowed. I find... Like I find the Nazgul, like the, the that the Black Riders Legendary Legion, they have no issue killing heroes, locking them down. No, it's so, I mean, yeah, like, it's probably one of the it's probably probably the top army right now at assassination. I would think. Oh yeah, like you're not gonna get any better. Um, they're gonna mow down your heroes. I think if anything, what I would love to see is I would love to see the Screech move as a free upgrade to all the other. Ring rights. you know what I mean? I'd like love the to named see ones. Mm-hmm. Even the named or even unnamed, like, like that should be a baseline rule that goes into all the other ring rights. Why do you think that? You, well, because just you see to the strengthen the st- ring rights. Is that just well, a to strengthen ring rights, but also b, like the black riders. You're, you're talking about the black riders have the ability to do the screech thing, um, and it's evidenced in the movies. Well, if you roll over to the um, the Faramir's charge on Osgiliath, which is the failed charge, right? And Gandalf mm-hmm. rides out to save him, flashing his big flashlight at the ring rates. They're screeching at Faramir and his riders. You look at the, the Battle of Minas Tirith, the ring rates are screeching all over the place, causing yeah. the warriors of Gondor to hold their ears and like be afraid. And only until Gandalf rolled up and sort of instilled them with fear, with courage, did they continue. And it's like... Well, if they're doing it that late in the game, they should just have this as a baseline rule. It shouldn't be built into a legendary legion, which is very, it's, which is built on theme, right?
Well, it's it's an interesting thing, as I think we're seeing, you know, when they started coming out with legendary legions. Like I certainly didn't think they were going to have this many legendary legions. They have, they're they're putting out a lot more than I ever thought they would, which is good in some ways, maybe not so good in other ways. I don't know, but um, in terms of like putting new rules into the game. Like right now, these a lot of new rules are coming via the legendary legions. So even though they they might be trotting out a new rule, and we're seeing it for the first time in in the game, and you know, assuming it's successful and they everybody likes it, you know, maybe in a future edition of the game, uh, it'll be expanded into other army lists. But like the way they're developing the game right now, which is kind of on the roll. Yeah, it, it's it's very hard to like they're saying, OK, we're trotting out this new rule for this legendary legion. And then, you know, six months later, they're going to say, OK, we're going to add that rule to all these different army lists. It's, I, it's a little bit much even for errata and that to be mm -hmm. to be doing that. So I think you're looking at um, new edition of the game in order to see some of these special rules that are coming out as part of the legendary legions be expanded to other versions of lists. Like I, I don't unless they're adopting like Games Workshop's mentality on on new editions, which is uh, every three years, every four years is a brand new edition. I don't see Middle Earth doing that. Like like with the amount of like books that are coming out with supplements if you would that are coming out to talk about legendary legions and this and that and that and this like i see middle earth's um sort of transition from edition to edition to be very slow um you know like maybe it's it's six or seven years before a new edition comes out and so you kind of have to build in that mechanic which allows you to make adjustments on the fly because you can't leave a unit or a model or a component of your game in a weakened state after you've realized that there's issue with it, right? For seven years, yeah. it just doesn't. Well, we'll, we'll see how them. that we'll see how that rolls out. Yeah. Because I, I get where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, MESBG seem to be on a little bit of a longer uh, lifespan than say 40k or Age of Sigmar or Warhammer used to. Right. Um, but I mean, keep in mind, like they did have a new edition, the Hobbit edition, which I believe was what, 2015? Oh, was it? And I think it was maybe 14 or 15, I'm guessing. But mm -hmm. the new edition came out in what, 2019? Yeah, about that. So it's only five years. It's mm. not all that long, actually. So who knows? Yeah, maybe. Um, okay, so I've got another one. Mm -hmm. um, it's a pretty important one. Uh, mm -hmm. Line of sight blocking terrain blocks blinding light or pall of shadows. So if you... There's none of this like i am got guys beside a wall and other, other guys behind the wall... And because everyone's within six inches, we're all got blinding light. Doesn't work like that. This is highly situational. Uh, I jest before about it being super important, but it is highly situational if you're running a model with blinding light or pall of darkness or pall of shadows, whatever it is called. And yeah. it's important to figure out where your models are in relation to that sort of that terrain, those terrain pieces that you have. So. so now people are going to be like, no, there's a tree trunk between you and the caster. Therefore, you do not have blinding light. Exactly. <laughs> um, do you have any others? 
I do. All right, let's hear your next one. Uh, okay, so you and I talked about this one just before we started recording, and I'll just read the question verbatim, and then we can talk about it, because it, it's one of these ones that it's, I don't know, it's kind of a weird one. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense, but it's, it's, it's odd. Question, can a model cast a magical power, such as command compel, mm-hmm. and then, depending on the result make a courage test to charge a model with the terror special rule so for example if like i'm interposing here so Mm -hmm. for example if i'm going to command compel let's say um i don't know like a dead marsh specter towards me which is kind of the reverse of what normally happens Mm -hmm. and then i want to charge that model well what happens if if he's out of my charge range when i'm casting the spell Mm-hmm. So the answer is no. If a model wishes to charge a model with terror, then they must take the courage test at the start of their move, even if the model in question is further than their move allowance at the start of their move. So even though you're like, let's say you're 10 inches away from a model that you plan on charging. Wait, mm-hmm. does that work? Let's say nine inches. Let's say you're nine inches away from a model you're planning on charging and it causes terror and you're hoping to compel it into range. Mm -hmm. You have to take the terror test even before you roll the spell. Yeah. Well, it's always been like that, right? Um, I don't know. Maybe I've just never had that situation crop up before. You've never really played Ravenous on Fellbeasts. That always occurred. You always, oh, yeah. like, I'm so inured with that, that, that idea. Like, you have to make the courage test before you even move your model. So you roll courage, then you can make your compel roll, which also makes it very dicey because I could roll my courage test, make it, fail my compel roll, and I don't move. Yeah. You're outside of my you're outside of my movement range. I just don't move because you're actually not a valid target anymore, and um, you just stand there. Right, or worse yet, I fail my command. I fail. I, I pass my courage test. I fail my compel roll. Well, I'm stuck having to charge you if you're in range, right? So, like, let's say a ring wraith on fell beast. Now the new one charging a troll, right? A Mordor troll chieftain. Mm-hmm. Let's say I'm gunning for a a, a channeled transfix. Let's say or a channel compel, uh, and I've cast it and I whiffed it hard but I already had to make my courage test. Guess what? I'm charging in and that troll is going to kill me. <laughs> so it, it adds a risk factor. You, you, you really need to be sure that you're going to make it the spell off uh, yeah. and make that courage test uh, before you can do it. And generally speaking, uh, this really only affects models that have high courage anyways, like courage mm-hmm. six. So it's, it's a, it's a very much a corner case where you failing the courage test is something that actually occurs. I don't know. To me, this is one of these things that I read and it's like in a game, I would be like, hey, what happens if I do this? Then, I'll, you know, do I roll this first or that second? That's ah, too confusing. I'll just try to compel something else that's closer. <laughs> that's exactly it. Honestly, as someone who played Ring Race on Felby's extreme, like all the time, last edition, I probably can count on two hands in all my games where this actually came up. Like it's not common. Yeah, yeah. it's not common. OK, it's not okay. common. Uh, let's see, models defending a barrier that are prone do not count, sorry, models that are prone do not count as defending a barrier as they have no control zone. 
Yeah, Don't models to... that are prone got hit in this FAQ a few ways. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that's a pretty important one because people generally will go prone to have the height of their model so that they can literally use the model or use the piece of terrain that they're hiding behind as a line yeah. of sight blocker. And before, what would happen is you still counted as defending. Well, now that's changed. You no longer count as defending, which means... Uh, if you decide to um, go for that line of sight blocking defense by going prone behind a, like a wall, uh, uh -huh. your opponent can literally roll up and jump over it and jump over you and land behind you while you're prone. So be very cautious about that. that yeah, that, I can't believe people would actually do that on purpose to gain an advantage, but certainly like if you're knocked prone and you're trying to defend a an obstacle or a wall or whatever it's now going to be really easy to just leap over and get in there uh it, i would do it fairly often i'll be honest with you yeah i do it fairly often uh, i've seen it play i've seen it done by a lot of top, tip, top table players especially when it comes to like um you know like a ring wraith or a caster that's on foot guess what i cast a spell i go prone you now can't see me you know what I mean? So there's, there's well, that's, that's fine, but like to me, yeah, like that's fine, but like don't expect yourself to get the bonus for defending the wall. Exactly. Which I, I totally guess agree. like guys like you used to pull that kind of janky crap, and now you can't. Rules as written. <laughs> Which one do you have? Uh, well, let's stay on the prone. Okay. Uh, for a second here, and another thing that prone models have lost is all those snazzy uh, special named banners count as jack now if they're being held by a guy who's prone. That's true. Whereas before it was, you would lose the banner effect, right? Which was the reroll, but you'd still have like the, the plus one fight from Boromir or the plus one might from gambling. You just lose the fearless all of it. from, uh, from, uh, from Arwen uh, Evenstar, from Halbarad and his banner in the, um, yeah, yeah, all of those now just count as nothing, which is yeah. it's what it should be. Um, yeah, it's a banner. It's on the ground. It's You're not waving your flag. Nobody sees it. There's no bonus. Exactly. Now, this actually creates a very interesting mechanic. And I say this because if you have the ability to hurl something that we don't see a lot of into a model that is on a horse... Uh, well, guess what? They're going to get knocked down if they've got this name banner. And unless they roll, um, you know, a decent number, actually, no, they're going to get knocked down with a hurl and are automatically knocked prone. Well, guess what? They, they, they're not going to give their banner effect. And that's actually a, a bit of a, it's a, a, a situational hit to Boromir, the White Tower, and his banner. Yeah. Because the moment he's knocked prone, everyone around him has one less fight value. And that can be the difference between a good engagement on your line or in a bad engagement. So are you saying like, for example, I'll just throw this hypothetical example out. So are you saying now that if a ring wraith casts a black dart on Boromir of the White Tower's horse with banner and kills the horse, it's really good now because the banner doesn't come into effect so that's if they fail their his throne rider test which is on a one but if you hurl a model into a mounted model the mounted model automatically suffers a one on the oh, okay okay test. okay 
I see where right you're going now. with that. Because let's just jump into that right now. I was uh, trying to segue. Okay, we're perfectly. But it segwaying. wasn't. It wasn't smooth. It wasn't smooth, but that's okay. It's smooth <laughs> enough. Uh, this leads to the unintended, or maybe it was very much intended, um, FAQ about Gandalf the White and Shadowfax. Where one, they, they had two questions, which was, can Shadowfax, uh, can Gandalf, can Shadowfax cast spells? Because he's got will. The answer is no. And can um, Gandalf use his will to resist shadow? Uh, use his will to help Shadowfax resist spells that target him specifically, i.e., like Black Dart. And the answer is no. Shadowfax is the only one being targeted by the spell. Uh, therefore, Shadowfax must use its own will. Which then there was a discussion, subsequent discussion on the GBHL about wait, doesn't that mean? A ring wraith can black dart anyone's mounted horse or anyone any hero's mounted hero's horse and just kill it outright with no resist rolls. And Jay's answer was yes, that's how it was always intended to be played. Yeah, so big rule, probably the biggest rule yeah. in the FAQ. Um, so yeah, that that is really putting another trick in the pocket mm -hmm. of a ring wraith for sure, and it, it's. I don't know if it's enough to bring more ring wraiths onto the table. Um, I think it probably is not like overwhelming, but certainly being able to snipe horses now and not have to worry about your spell being resisted is big. So I'll say to this, um, if you were already taking wraiths before, it's not going to change anything. Um, yeah. Named wraiths outside the Witch King and... Um, the Shadow Lord aren't getting better overnight. Sorry, they're not. Um, I think this will lead to the rise in the Pocket Wraith, which we used to see. You know, in the old 271, yeah. unnamed Wraith. You're grabbing this Wraith because, one, it gives you March. You're grabbing this Wraith because it also gives you the ability to one dice, two dice, fishing for a black dart to knock off a, an enemy hero's horse. And that's a big deal. You dismount an enemy hero... That's like reducing its lethality by 50%, which is what we talked about before. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that they cannot resist it outside of those with Horse Lord who can sort of throw their fate at it, um, that's a big deal. You know? It is. And like, like we've talked before about like people are generally, if they take a Ring Wraith now, you're taking the Witch King because, you know, the uh, Crown of Morgul is so good. Plus, he has. Um, What's that staff shattering spell he Your has that nobody broken. else has? Your staff is broken. Um, so generally, you see the Witch King before you see any other Ring Wraith. But like I can see seeing an army list now with the Ring Wraith and one of those budget Wraiths, 271 yep. or something like that, just for the, the horse sniping ability. Oh, yeah. No. This is um, a big shift. Now, I'll say this. It's a big shift at mid-tier. It's not a big shift at the top tier tables because the top tier tables have fortify spirit, generally mm -hmm. speaking. And fortify spirit affects the whole model. So even if you're going to lance a horse, they're still going to get two dice to resist. And that was probably one of the, the thing I wanted to see in this FAQ. I was hoping to see, fingers crossed, in this FAQ was them nerfing fortify spirit because it really creates the imbalance between good and evil. Like when, when Galadriel Lady of Light or Gandalf the White become requirements to be able to defend your heroes against magic, it's and it's and they become requirements because 
they have Fortify Spirit, it's it's time to start looking at that spell as a, as a reason for why magic isn't more prevalent in the game. Something as simple as Fortify Spirit just going to become magic resistance. Done. Problem solved. You know, I get one extra dice when I roll. And that would be more than enough to be like, okay, as a spellcaster, as an evil player bringing a ringwraith, I'm okay with my opponent getting one extra dice in the dice roll. Because I can deal with that, you know? But two extra dice for free? That's crippling. Yeah, and I think the thing, too, is that both of the heroes that... Or I don't know if more have it, but those two heroes that you mentioned, they they both get free will every turn. So they tend to uh, spam that spell, which is really annoying. Yes. Or can be. I remember playing um, in my last game at TGX... Uh, and I was playing, what was it, To the Death, I think it was, against Joseph, and he was playing as Rivendell. I was playing my my Linebreaker list with my, like, three or four heroes plus Galadriel, and for the first five turns, Joseph didn't move. And guess what happened for the first five turns? I casted Fortify Spear on every hero I had on my team yeah. before I even considered moving. And it was the difference between winning and losing that game because Elrond did nothing in terms of magic. But anyways, yeah, so this is a, a pretty big deal that um, Wraiths and Black Darts are still effective. Now, it'll be a mid-tier change, um, You and I, I expect to see probably more budget Wraiths if you're taking those types of armies, but it, is it a strong enough change that you'll see people actually start playing those armies to play those models? I think the answer is no. I, don't, I think there, there's too much going in favor of spell defense than there is spell offense. Well, honestly, I think the biggest impact of that spell you're going to see at higher, um, like, top tables or higher level tables, it's just Witch King is going to be doing that a lot more. Like, with with the Crown of Morgul, you know, you can be throwing one dice um, black darts trying to, like, you know snipe horses uh, that's that's well worth it like oh yeah that's a that's a great use of your will right there and so what that's really just done is it's made angmar slightly stronger it's made mordor situationally stronger if you want to lean towards the pocket wraith um but that's about it like it doesn't make harad it doesn't make corsair stronger because it doesn't make the Betrayer or the Knight of Umbar or Easterlings with um, Kamal. It doesn't make them any stronger um, just because those named Wraith tend to use their, their will doing other things, right? So. Yeah, and I think that sort of gives you an idea of this FAQ overall, whereas that is probably the biggest biggest gem in, in, in the whole FAQ, and it's yeah. really not all that big of a deal. It really isn't. Um, yeah, I was hoping for a couple of other things, but you know, it, it's it's still um, steps in the right direction for clarifying how mm-hmm. rules work, and that's always a good thing, right? Yeah, it's better to get something than to get nothing. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. Like, it's it's not a lot. Like, but I think the majority of changes that we saw in this FAQ, at least the noteworthy ones are kind of supporting evil a little bit because like the banner nerf for prone is basically affecting mostly all good armies. Does evil even have like a named banner? It has a couple of heroes with banners, but they don't actually do anything other than be, I'm a banner. 
All right, what, what's your next one you got for me? I'm out. You're out. Um, yep. There's only two others I have left. Um, and that is models hit by a ballista are still thrown backwards whether they die or not. Nice little clarification and um, a slight buff for siege weapons, uh, which makes sense. Yeah, and sense. For, for the ballista, like... It, it, like everything about its shooting effect is is throwing the target backwards. So if, if you're like, hey, he died, he doesn't get to be thrown backwards. It's like, oh my god, really? Like, let's be honest. The model isn't the thing that's killing stuff that's being thrown backwards. The massive ballista through its stomach is still propelling forwards <laughs> is what's killing stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the dead ragged body is the incidental thing that's also hitting yeah. you as it goes back. <laughs> Um, the other thing was um, Mablung, the Rangers of Athelion, the new one that came out. Um, Mablung and all models within six inches of him um, get, ignore models with the stock unseen special rule beyond six inches. So what had happened was when Mablung's special rule came out, um, rules as written, it was actually only affected... Sorry, rules as written, his special rule only negated enemy models with stock unseen if he was within six inches of them, which made no sense. So they've mm-hmm. just clarified this to say as long as he's within six inches of his of his peeps, of his fellow rangers, they automatically ignore any model they're shooting at with the stock unseen special rule. Okay, so is, it's more of a clarification of the wording of the special rule? Pretty much. It, I, I wouldn't have fought against it if, if, if this wasn't in place. I wouldn't have been that guy for or yeah. against me if I was playing the army or not. So it's just like a nice way of sort of tightening up the rules on that one. Very good. Yeah. Oh. I still have that guy on my painting table. I still have that guy in this box. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm one step ahead of you. Mine's primed and ready to go. Oh, jeez. <laughs> All right, well, Andrew has had to run off to deal with some kind of accounting emergency or something. So sadly, we will not be having the what have I got in my pocket segment in this episode, but we'll get back to that next time. If you have any comments or questions, please send them to us at North of the Shire Podcast One, the number one, at gmail.com or drop us a comment on our Facebook page. Thanks for joining us for another episode here on North of the Shire. Mm-hmm.